Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. On Friday, June 23rd, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Russian mercenary Wagner Group, took to Telegram to announce that he would march for justice to stop the Russian defense leadership's evil. By Saturday morning, Wagner forces had claimed control of Rostov-on-Don, a major Russian military center near the Ukrainian border. His forces proceeded in a convoy into Russia toward Moscow. Putin declared him a traitor, and in a dizzying turn, it was announced that Prigozhin would be allowed to retire to Belarus. To try and understand what happened and what it all means for Putin's hold on power in Russia, we are speaking with Catherine Stoner, Mossbacher Director and Senior Fellow at the Center on Democracy, Development and the Rule of Law, a Professor of Political Science and Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, all at Stanford University. Her most recent book is Russia Resurrected, Its Power and Purpose in a New Global Order. She's an experienced observer of the tensions between democracy and autocracy in Russia. Catherine, welcome to Hot Wash. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. Uh, you wrote a piece recently for the Journal of Democracy, and you quoted Lenin saying, there are decades where nothing happens in Russia, and there are weeks where decades happen. Uh, boy, could that not be true uh, about uh, June and early July. Wagner's relationship with Putin has always been... Uh, Volatile, to say the least. Is that a good word? Uh, interesting. Um, sometimes denied. Uh, all of the above. Prigozhin claims that uh, there was a Russian rocket strike on one of his uh, the Wagner camps, uh, killing his men. Of course, he was uh, referred to the massive casualties in Bakhmut. We s- still have no idea. He he was claiming as high as twenty thousand. How do you refer to this event? Was it a mutiny, a coup, a rebellion, an ill thought out? tantrum? What, what, how do you think about the events that we've witnessed so far? Sure. So it was, it was a rebellion. Um, I think it, uh, you know, you said, uh, Putin's had a, I would say he had a complicated relationship. Complicated. With Prigozhin. There is, that's right. Um, Prigozhin does an, uh, an, we think still does a number of things, um, for Putin, not just Wagner. Um, but this this was prompted by um, the the ongoing uh, and long term feud Prigozhin had with the Minister of Defense of Russia, not with Putin, but with Putin's Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu, who's very close to Putin. Um, he's the only other guy who's uh, allowed to score goals in Putin's hockey games under, other than Putin himself. Um, so that should tell you something. <laughs> uh, Putin often scores 10 goals in a hockey game. Uh, uh, Shoigu on his birthday is allowed to score a few. Um, Just on his and, birthday. <laughs> yeah. And and also Gerasimov, who, General Gerasimov, who's the... Right. Chief of the generals. Exactly, of Russia. And, and so um, Prigozhin's... Uh, Prigozhin's complaint was that he had been sending his Wagner mercenaries in, a a group that he did not acknowledge any association with until about a year ago. Um, And uh, and they were fighting hard in Bakhmut. Um, He had gone into prisons in some cases and uh, recruited uh, prisoners with the promise that they, if they could survive six months uh, fighting in Ukraine for Wagner, they would have freedom. And of course, he could only have done that if Vladimir Putin had said, you can do it. That's fine. Um, because there's nothing in Russian law that, that had said that he could do it. Um, so these were these were tough guys, right? Um, and uh, there were also professional mercenaries. And we can talk where else Wagner has been or what it was doing in other parts of the world. 
Um, but, um, you know, uh, the, 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 the battle for Bakhmut in uh, eastern Ukraine took a long time, about nine months. Uh, Wagner, you know, Prigozhin really wanted to make this his battle. So his guys were in there and he lost a lot of them. Um, a lot of them were used essentially as ca- cannon fodder, right? They just right. they just threw bodies at them, and the Ukrainians just mowed them down. And eventually, you know, you throw enough bodies, and and they took Bakhmut. So <laughs> then Wagner was to withdraw, and regular Russian forces were to hold Bakhmut, and that's the situation now. So they withdrew to their camp, but. In this ongoing battle that I'd mentioned between uh, uh, Prigozhin and, uh, in particular, Shoigu, um, the defense minister, Shoigu evidently convinced Putin, you know what, we can't have these militias running around. And there isn't just Wagner, there are a couple of others. And so we need um, to get their fighters to sign up as regular soldiers in the Russian military. And they need to turn in their weapons and do this by June 30th. And we need to to have them organized under us. And you mentioned the the bombing of the Wagner camp, which which um, Prigozhin started his rebellion by putting a, a video of that on Telegram and saying, "Look, they bombed our guys. Uh, it's it's our you know it's Russian against Russian here. They wouldn't give us enough ammunition. A lot of my guys died. That's it. Uh, we're marching." To Rostov uh, Nadonu, Rostov on Don, uh, which was the was which is the the seat of the Southern Military Command um, that is that is uh, basically planning and ex- well executing at least or the last staging area before going into Eastern Ukraine for the Russian military. And you know, I want Shoigu and get Asimov. And so, really, that's what prompted this. Um, was this demand that the the uh, mercenary groups like Wagner, and in particular Wagner, um, de- demobilize and and uh, those soldiers come under the regular military command, and that's what Prigozhin did not want to do. So uh, we were on a, a recent episode and talking with Calder Walton about his book Spies and and describing Putin's cabinet as having more in common with a royal court. You know, it's mm-hmm. like something out of Peter the Great. So talk to us about what are the alignments within the court? You know, we've got Shoigu and, and Gerasimov on one side. Uh, we've got uh, Prigozhin kind of on the outside as, you know, uh, kind of like a baron with, uh, you know, eastern, you know, land holdings that's uh, important to the czar. And you know, who else is aligned on Prigozhin's side? I mean, Prigozhin wouldn't have gone into this without thinking that he was going to get backing from someone. Are there, can you help uh, help us understand what are the different camps within Putin's orbit? Sure. So I, I would say that that is a, that is a very um, rough uh, description, right? So that so the cabinet's actually quite big. Um, I think he's referring probably to sort of the formal cabinet and then the informal cabinet. And and so the way I don't want to get into the weeds too deeply, although it's kind of my job um, <laughs> to get into the weeds. I guess the, you can the get into the weeds that, a little bit. That's what we're here for. Yeah, I mean, people don't listen to a forty-five minute podcast about uh, you know Prigozhin and the Russians without wanting to learn a little bit something more than they might get out of the the headline. True. So so the cabinet itself is is about you know. 30 people, right? And um, uh, the, the so-called power ministries are what are directly under 
um, the president. The, the rest are technically under the prime minister. And I bet, you know, 95 out of 100 Americans could not tell you right now who the prime minister of Russia is. Um, and, and if you're listening and you just said, oh, it's Dmitry Medvedev, you're wrong. Uh, it is actually uh, Mikhail Mishustin. It has been Mishustin um, since January 2020. Medvedev is no longer in the Russian government formally. Form- well, he is in the National Security Council, and we can talk about him later. Um, so there, there are about nine deputy prime ministers, maybe 10 now. They, this moves around, and then a bunch of federal ministers. And so the power ministries are things like, you know, um, Minister of Defense, and this is, of course, Sergei Shoigu, who's been in that position for over a decade now, easily. Um, and then, um, and then beyond that, the uh, outside of the cabinet per se um, is uh, um, our, you know, uh, the Minister of the Interior, um, the Minister of um, uh, Foreign. Uh, intelligence, um, right? So these are the, this is the FSB, the FSB. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And this is what, um, this is what has become basically of the KGB. They've been split, right? Right, right. Um, and, and then, um, so, so these guys, and then Patrushev, who's not formally in the cabinet again, he's head of the security council. Patrushev, Bortnikov, Narishkin, the heads of the power ministries and the security council, they all have KGB backgrounds. Hmm. Um, and so does Putin, of course. Um, and so they have had, they had some ties to Putin, uh, through that from, from, you know, before the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, Shoigu does not actually, Shoigu has not served in, in the KGB. Um, he actually was, um, uh, uh, never served actually in the military at all either, despite the fact that he wears, he likes to strut around in a, you know, uniform or, or fatigues with uh, medals and whatnot on his chest. I actually have never examined what those are exactly. Um, because he, but he, because again, he's, ne- but he's, he never he's the perception is he's popular with the troops, right? He's, I mean, he's done a lot to modernize the, the military over the last decade or so. He, he oversaw it, I guess. Yeah. He didn't actually start it. That was started by the previous defense minister, but yeah, he oversaw it. And, and certainly a lot of new systems, um, have have been put in place and and modernized. Um, so you know there are lots of uh, different theories here um, about about who is who, who's up, who's down. So things have become a little bit more like criminology. Right. Right. I think far too much is made of the quote unquote influence that Prigozhin has on Putin and Putin versus Prigozhin. There's no Putin versus Prigozhin here, right? There is Putin still um, who who is preeminent. However, there is a challenge to his authority here, not necessarily to his, you know, to his regime per se. When you challenge Shoigu and Gerasimov, as Prigozhin did, and you hold, you know, one of the deputy uh, ministers of defense uh, hostage, evidently, um, and a lieutenant general um, hostage in the Southern Military Command. That's highly problematic. And, and saying that you're basically you're hunting the heads of the Minister of Defense and the Chief right. of the General Staff. Right. Now, um, that's you. You would think, and getting within 200 kilometers of Moscow, marching up on this, what did he call it, a march of justice, um, would 
caused Prigozhin a lot more trouble than it evidently has caused him, um, in, including his life, right? Um, so, w- so what has been going on here? And there is an argument, a reasonable argument that the way, and maybe this gets us back to the sort of Tsar's court metaphor. I actually don't think that's a very good one. Um, because I think, I think that, you know, you mentioned one thing I wrote in Journal of Democracy. I wrote a couple of other things, one in, um, the Atlantic and one in Politico as well. Right. Right. Um, and I think that too often, uh, Russian politics is portrayed as Putin, 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 Putin. Well, that's the way he wants it portrayed. Um, and that is really sort of a warning to other elites um, that, you you know, there, there is there is no point in challenging me. There is only me. Um, but Russia has politics. Russia is a big country, right? It's 140 million people. Um, if I'm, I'm not counting Crimea there. Um, it is losing people. Um, the birth rate is low um, to negative right now. Um, it has a high mortality rate. Um, it has high inequality. Um, and who's going and fighting this this war? Well, it's often the poor guys who don't have, even if they're professional soldiers, they don't have other you know, good alternatives. Uh, it's not the cosmopolitan elites in, in Moscow. Um, it is not the sons and daughters, for the most part, uh, of um, of the elites that we've just mentioned. Um, and um, it is certainly not Putin and Shoigu themselves. Um, and so this is this gets people like Prigozhin, who fancies himself, he's a criminal, basically, right? But fancies himself quite a fighter because he's been working for Wagner, which was a creature initially of, of um, defense intelligence. He's frequently and inaccurately named as its quote unquote founder. He's not its founder. He's the face of it. And he, he really got into it. Um, but it's a business that, that he was asked to run basically by Putin. Um, and um, uh, he is a client. The way the system works is it's almost like a pyramid of patron client relations. And so he here is a client that was used to balance out two other clients. You could ask him off more than two. Right. You get asked him off, Patrushev, these guys we've just mentioned, um, um, uh, and Shoigu. And he got a little out of control. Uh, you know, the clients start fighting with one another. I think the better the better metaphor is actually a mafia boss. Hmm. Right. And and if you watch The Sopranos, John, you know <laughs> yeah. what happened. I don't want to ruin it for anyone, but things don't right. go right. Well. well, when you start end, doing things that are bad that for business, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, you get moved up, right. moved off the chessboard. Right. And and so uh, for a long time, Prigozhin was doing things that are good for business and that balance uh, other uh, mafia groups out. Right. So they can't challenge the boss, which is Putin. And then until he was no longer good. Right. Well, I mean, one thing that's interesting to me and a little baffling, to be honest, is uh, Prigozhin's whole uh, approach to his position. I mean, it's not just Wagner Group. You know, I mean, he has, you know, there's this Concord Catering, which does funding. There's Patriot Mm -hmm. Media Group. So he's got he's got this media wing. He over time, he's been incredibly vocal. I mean, throughout the uh, the most recent, the full invasion of Ukraine. Uh, he's been far more vocal than you would expect of someone who is mm-hmm. trying to curry favor. It's a weird way of uh, of of getting Putin on your good side to to be as noisy as he is. I mean, can you just talk about that strategy? And I mean, again, it's 
what's real, what's bravado, what's kind of he's created this personality almost, this this character. Um, talk about his strategy of using the media and uh, being as vocal as he has. I mean, he's still going. I think it was today he he was on Telegram um, asking. Yeah, and yesterday. Or, yesterday, yeah. yeah. Yesterday, too. Yeah, so, okay. So the other business that you didn't mention was the Internet Research Agency, IRA, which right. is the star of the Mueller report, basically. The, the, so this is the, these are the, the bots and troll farm up in St. Petersburg that, lo and behold, it turns out Yevgeny Prigozhin, quote-unquote, owned and ran. Okay, let's sort this out. How can a guy who spent 12 years in prison in the, in the Soviet period, gets out in the early 1990s, he's in St. Petersburg, this is Prigozhin, at the same time um, that Putin comes back from serving for the KGB, he goes into, as we know, government in St. Petersburg as deputy mayor for international trade, which is an appointed position. And he, somehow, Prigozhin goes from selling hot dogs on the street, basically, to um, uh, becoming a, uh, setting up a popular restaurant. And it turns out none other than Putin and his friends frequent uh, in the early 90s. And this is how he becomes Putin's caterer. Well, he's willing to do, we, we already know, because he spent a dozen years in prison. And it wasn't because if he, he was like a, a dissident. <laughs> he would have been in prison pretty much in any country, right? It was, it was like a, a robbery <laughs> and aggravated assault. Uh, it's not like he was anti-Soviet. Um, he he then becomes kind of useful, evidently, to Putin and his circle as time goes on as a guy who's willing to be a front for business of Putin's regime uh, once Putin becomes president. And so one of the, the first things we see is the Internet Research Agency, um, this bots and trolls agency. So getting back to that. How is it a guy who probably can't even log on to, you know, Chrome, <laughs> able to recruit? I mean, it's sort of silly, right? Like, I'm, I'm sorry to laugh. Right, right. Well, I, I imagine a billion dollars in cash probably helped. <laughs> yeah. I, how would he recruit and tell these people what to do? He didn't, right? He's a, he's a front, right? He kept it running. He probably, he rented it. It's registered, the building, it's registered under his name. He kept it quiet. He was trustworthy for Putin. That's the main thing. He was loyal and trustworthy, and he made some money from it. And he also got all kinds of government contracts to supply food for, for the Ministry of Defense. So all of those little boxes of you know prepared food that the Ukrainians are finding after the Russians leave um, their positions uh, when they retake a city, those are all made most likely by one of Prigozhin's companies. He also has um, uh, contracts, similar contracts with um, the school system in Moscow. And then, so he's proven, he proves trustworthy. He starts Wagner at the same time. Okay, just correct that. He doesn't start Wagner, just like he didn't start the Internet Research Agency. How the hell would, pardon me. But this is a podcast, right? Oh, feel with free. We're, guy, all, we're all adults yeah. here. <laughs> I mean, how would this guy have the idea? I know. I'll start a troll factory and I'll start and I'll try to disrupt the U.S. elections. Or I know now I'm going to start a mercenary agency and I'm going to go to um, to Syria and Libya and then, you know, into Mali and Central African Republic 
um, with my mercenaries and, um, you know, make myself some money. How would that guy with that background have that idea? And the answer is he didn't. Um, it isn't his ideas. It's not something he owns per se. This was the idea of, um, either we think either um, defense intelligence, Russian defense intelligence to give plausible deniability to covert actions uh, that they're carrying out in sub-Saharan Africa in the Middle East. Um, but, you know, Prigozhin being Prigozhin, everyone has, it turns out, a personality except Brezhnev, they used to say. Brezhnev had, was, a, <laughs> was, a, was he, a cult without a personality. A they cult used, without uh, a personality. They used yeah. to call for Brezhnev. Prigozhin, it turns out, has quite a personality um, and gets a little carried away, dare I say, right? So there he is, right, in Central African Republic, and he's helping um, he's helping market diamonds that they would, you know, and helping, Wagner is helping with security. Well, who do you think gets a kickback from those diamond sales, right, through Prigozhin? Uh, Putin, Putin and his, and, you know, those are those around him. So this is basically how the system works, right? This was a very useful client who was greedy, liked to make money, and Putin revealed to us how much he's made, uh, right, from from the Russian state. He's a billion dollars last year and maybe a billion the year before. Um, and and th in the meantime, the Russian government could say, hey, you know what? That's not us. That's not us in Syria. And um, do you remember, John, the... Um, conflict that u.s forces had with wagner uh yeah it did not go well for wagner yes <laughs> yeah so i i'm not ex i can't just off the top of my head this is in my book actually but i think it might have been 2016 but it might That's, have been earlier that sounds right but yeah basically special forces encountered a contingent of wagner and um uh the u.s exercised combined arms in a devastating <laughs> way that the wagner troops were just really ill prepared to deal with yeah, and actually, before um, the U.S. engaged, the uh, U.S. guys engaged. What they were they were protecting a pipeline in northern Syria, mm -hmm. and they called the Russian. You know, they they were they were supposed to still deconflict with uh, Russian forces when they encountered them, and so they called the deconfliction hotline um, and uh, spoke to you know the Russians on the other side and said, "Hey, we see your guys coming at us. Um, can right. you tell them to stop?" we're going to have to start shooting. We don't want to, you know, kill them, but, you know, that's going to happen. And the Russian military uh, uh, officially said, those aren't our guys. And so the, the Americans did shoot them. And of course they were Russian citizens. They were Wagner. And so the Americans called back and said, you might want to come pick up your guys. Some are, you know, wounded. Um, some are dead here. Um, and the, again, military said, those aren't our guys. Um, and and wouldn't come get them. Eventually, I think they did, but um, but that's the you know you can already see there's ho there's hostility because the regular you know general or lieutenant general or or sergeant who's answering the phone is like well I don't know the history of Wagner I don't know who these guys are this might really right. be a mercenary group I don't care right or they were given orders don't acknowledge them right otherwise you blow their cover um, so. Um, we can get to Ukraine and resentment that grows um, between Prigozhin and Shoigu if you want, but that's that's who Prigozhin is, right? He's 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 not a challenger to Putin. He is a creature um, of Putin's and a client of Putin's. His businesses th th uh, thrive uh, because of Putin, um, 
and uh, the money he he has gotten is is uh, is because of Putin uh, and Putin actually employing him to do this kind um, of of work. Um, so uh, the creature, the monster, um, got a little out of control. Well, I mean, let's let's go to the title of your piece in the Atlantic. Why did Putin let Prigozhin go? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so interesting, right? One of the one of the terrible facts about uh, Russian. Politics uh, was pointed out to me by my my 22 year old daughter, who's not a, a specialist, um, but I guess has grown up with me, um, who said, "Huh, it's a terrible irony that the good guys are in jail and this guy gets away." Um, and by the by the good guys, she means um, people you know like Ilya Yashin and, and uh, who's a, a, a member of the liberal opposition who just has been given nine years in prison last year for um for you know speaking out against the special military operation as it, it's still forbidden to call it a war unless you're putin in ukraine um and um, um vladimir karamuza who's who's in jail for 25 years for doing the same thing and of course alexei navalny who's right formally in a jail for nine years but you know, they seem intent on trying to kill him in prison. And off goes Prigozhin, right? Uh, who none of those guys that I just named uh, did anything but fight with words. Prigozhin uses tanks. Uh, he uses uh, anti-aircraft uh, uh, weaponry. He brings down a plane, a uh, Russian military plane, and five, maybe six helicopters. Um, there are Estimates of, of somewhere between, you know, 13 and 20 uh, possible casualties in the Russian military during this, uh, only on the Russian military side during this rebellion. And yet, Prigozhin appears to be allowed to retreat um, and um, his fighters go, quote unquote, back to base, uh, wherever that is, um, as he said, according to the plan, whatever the plan was. Um, and, uh, he himself is, um, is, uh, sent off, uh, to Belarus, which is essentially a client state, um, of, uh, of Russia's. So it's not as though he's being let go completely. So why, why is Prigozhin seemingly at this point now we're what, uh, almost two weeks out since this happened, uh, still alive and, uh, and permitted, uh, to go to Belarus and, and on top of it, his fighters uh, either have to give up their weaponry and join the Russian military, and so many of them have done that, um, we think, but we don't know exactly. Um, and others can go join Prigozhin in Belarus. And there's some evidence from aerial photos that a, a, um, a defunct military um, base in Belarus is, uh, is being prepared for, for Wagner. We don't, we don't know for sure. That's what's happening. And and as of yesterday, last time I saw the video feeds that there didn't seem to be a lot of uh, buses or equipment or anything. And it it seems as though the Wagnerites are not going to be allowed to bring their equipment. Nonetheless, why are any of these guys uh, still alive and especially pre-gold? Still breathing. Yeah. Right. So I think it's, I, I think, uh, that the, the other shoe has not dropped yet. We, we don't know how long uh, it will take um, for uh, Prigozhin to actually get what we think is coming to him. Um, Putin does not do well when he perce- with people he perceives as disloyal. And again, Prigozhin, not disloyal to Putin or the system, but 
challenging people that Putin has has trusted um, to run this war. And um, Putin can't be happy necessarily with the way the war is going. Uh, this was all supposed to, you know, according to the intelligence he had, they were really supposed to have Kiev in a week uh, in, in 2022. Um, and uh, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, was supposed to have, have fled. Um, and the Ukrainians were supposed to welcome the Russians as liberators. Um, and the Ukrainian military was supposed to put down its weapons when basically when Putin you know, told them to. Um, none of that happened, right? Whose fault is that? Well, it's probably the fault of the FSB. Uh, they have a foreign intelligence wing. And according to people who follow this closely, they, they, they told Putin, you know, it, it was kind of positive confirmation bias. Uh, we made them this mistake, the United States and Iraq, right? Um, as well. Um, big thing, right. Uh, and so, uh, what's the, what's the upshot? Well, they get mired in a, in a war they weren't ready for. Um, apparently Shoigu, even Garasimov were, brought in very late into the planning process uh, of this war, uh, as opposed to it being a um, uh, uh, just an exercise, military exercise. Um, and so uh, it t- guys who run the FSB and the SDR, turns out they don't run wars terribly well. And so the Russian military is left to try to mop this up. Um, and, you know, uh, again, uh, Putin, who has also never fought in a war, but clearly fancies himself as quite a strategist, um, thinks, okay, well, you know what? Great opportunity to bring in some of these mercenaries who've, who've you know, sharpened their swords in uh, sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East. Uh, let's bring in good old Prigozhin, right? And Prigozhin, he likes attention, evidently, as we're seeing, and thinks of himself as a warrior. Uh, and, you know, he's got this prisoner passed. So the first thing we start seeing after he's denied for years, including in British courts, is anything to do with Wagner, right? He even he even sues um, uh, newspapers claiming that he runs Wagner. Uh, this is only two years ago. Um, suddenly, we're seeing grainy video of him in prisons, in Russian prisons. Um, and uh, he, this can only have been allowed, recruiting prisoners to, to fight, as I said earlier, this can only have been permitted because Putin permitted it. And he had some kind of, you know, hey, Valoria, let's, let's, uh, what do you think of this idea? And we'll, I'll tell them. And they'll just, if they're successful, they're successful. And if not, they die. What's the big deal? Um, well, I think once you start seeing people die uh, in war uh, and you're someone like Prigozhin, um, you start to pants in and you have a little success because you're so brutal and so willing to sacrifice the lives. Um, you start thinking, Hey, I'm pretty great. Right. I mean, it gets a certain bravado and you know, who's not running things well, Shoigu and get Asimov. And, and then they take out, um, uh, you know, he starts getting involved in decisions about who's leading um, the, um, the military, the entire military effort. And, um, and then, yeah, he's mouthy on Telegram. And this is probably somewhat useful to Putin in, in kicking uh, Gerasimov and Shoigu into being a little bit more aggressive. Um, and then, you know, you can see by the, the number of changes in, in um, military leadership, and that ultimately goes back to Gerasimov in January, that there are fights 
going on behind the scenes. Um, and, uh, and Prigozhin is trying to involve himself in those fights. So why is he still alive? Well, let's see how long that goes on. He's, he is, he was divested of a lot of ownership of his various businesses. You mentioned, uh, well, that, I mean, that seems to be really the big question is, is how much yeah. access to capital and material does he, will he retain or, or be able to control after the fact? Yeah. So, so he's being, some of these things are clearly being taken from him. Um, Wagner's building has been raided, you know, um, um, I, I, can't remember what the latest figure was, but it's over a hundred million dollars at least was was uh, confiscated. But apparently now that's been given back to him. But the businesses themselves ha- appear to have been taken um, from him. But he, he, some of them, still supply food to the Russian military, right? <laughs> so the troops still need to eat. So right. so someone needs to take control of those right. and um it, it can't be Prigozhin. so i think there's a bit of a process of unwinding um ownership and management uh, of some of these things and then i think there's there is some fear and this is you had mentioned that uh, one of the pieces i had written i think there is some fear that there was some complicity um on the part uh of um members of the Russian military. Well, there's reports and, that and what, General Sorovkin was arrested. It's unclear what's happening there. But I mean, do you have any insight into where he falls on this alignment spectrum? Yeah. So what's super interesting. So this, yeah, uh, called General Armageddon for what he did in, in Syria. Um, Sorovkin uh, was running for a time the uh, military effort in uh, uh, Ukraine. Uh, he was, um, he was allowed to take over basically from roughly, I think, September to January, uh, September 2022 to January 2023. And then back comes, uh, Gerasimov. Um, Sirovkin seems to at least be detained. Uh, he's still, I just, uh, checked a few minutes ago. He, he's, he still hasn't been seen for 10 days. Um, you might remember he was he was one of the generals who uh, came on and, and told Prigozhin to turn back. Right. He came on Telegram and it, it looked like um, I think Susan Glasser in the in the New Yorker said it looks a bit like a hostage video. And, and it did look a bit like a hostage video. But strangely, he had a machine gun uh, across his his lap. Um, there are some people who thought he seemed to slur his words in that video. Either he was drugged or, or he was drunk. Um, he does have rosy red cheeks. Anyway, why does this matter? Well, Surovkin, as you probably know, served with um, Prigozhin in Syria. Um, and um, Prigozhin was a big backer of Surovkin and didn't like that uh, Surovkin was removed as, uh, as the, the uh, chief of um, the armed forces in Ukraine and replaced again by Gerasimov in January of this year um, and get out and he's now deputy chief of the armed for uh, of the, of the effort in Ukraine under Gerasimov. So for us not to see him for 10 days, especially since this video appeared during this armed rebellion now almost two weeks ago is odd. Uh, right. Um, and also his security detail has not been, been seen. Um, so, 
so where is he and what what's happening? And I think this partly that and all of the businesses that um, that Prigozhin has that are so tied to the Russian military and to Russian intelligence explains why Prigozhin is still alive, right? He's not safe in Belarus, um, but there's really nowhere else he can go. Yeah, it's a pretty short yeah. list of countries that uh, won't arrest him for various war crimes or or crime crimes or, you know, all of the above. Yeah. Even if he were sent to Mali or, uh, right. you know, Central African Republic where Wagner fighters are, well, he's not beyond the reach uh, of, of uh, you know, the, the R- Russian covert agencies um, doing that. And, and of course, you know, even a, there's a deputy foreign minister has gone to Mali, who's going to Central African Republic to basically reassure them that we'll take over whatever Wagner was doing. And that's remarkable because two years ago, they, that that was going to be one of my questions was what, yeah, what's happening in Africa to all those contracts. Yeah. Well, actually as a minister, it wasn't even MOD. I think it was ministry of foreign affairs um, did it. And then, and (laughs) yeah, no, it was a deputy. Oh, deputy. deputy. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, um, this is what what's fascinating for those of us who watch this closely is two years ago they're denying that right, right, anything right. Of to course. do with these guys didn't know who they were this yeah. Prigozhin off on his own now you know Putin's saying no we paid them a billion dollars last year we paid you know he made a billion dollars before that if there's any doubt this is from the state budget well, what, show me the budget line that ever appeared in right, don't right. see that um, so I think, I think Prigozhin is alive for now because, um, they're untangling these relationships, Surovkin, uh, we're finding out, uh, sorry, sorry, uh, Surovkin, we're finding out what his role was. Yeah. If you're, if you're, uh, Prigozhin, you need to invest in a good Geiger counter for your breakfast cereal, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And it, so, but, but it is amazing. And so, you know, again, why is he still safe? There wasn't a massive rebellion uh, uh, in that it doesn't look like masses of troops necessarily joined actively. Still, they can ill afford the loss of, I mean, let's take him at face value and say it was 25,000, even if it was half of that. I mean, 10, 15,000 is not something you want to lose given how things are going on the on the Right. Front. And that's just Wagner. That's just Wagner. That's forces, what I mean. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. But but it isn't just but, what you know, marching into as Wagner did uh, with with Prigozhin a few weeks ago, marching into Rostov on the dawn. Which is, which is, you know, as I said, the head of the Southern Military Command, right? That's the seat of the Southern Military Command, taking it without losing a single one of his guys. Um, how can that have happened? Why did nobody shoot at them? Right. right. And so that's passive support, even if it's not active. And so one of the things I wrote in the one of my pieces is one reason it, um, that that you know he's still alive. Prigozhin is still alive, and don't forget, he gets all the way up within two hundred kilometers. Um, right, a, a two hundred two two hour drive of Moscow um, seems to occupy a lot of Varonish as well, another city. Well, how can that possibly happen um, unless there is at least passive, if not active, support of parts of the Russian military? And I think that's probably the case. And until that's sorted out, I think Prigozhin lives. Um, but uh, once it is, I don't think Prigozhin's you know Prigozhin's a ticking time bomb, basically. I, I imagine that Putin has made a list of who didn't speak up, uh, who was strategically silent in the waiting period, waiting for that other shoe. Yeah. And sort of he can did speak up and and he's detained. We th- 
where is he? His daughter says, oh, no, he's just working. He doesn't usually give uh, press conferences on a regular basis. But I'm not convinced by that. <laughs> right. Well, it, it's clear that there's a lot that we we don't know. and We have to just wait for it to to unravel. You've looked at the progress of democracy in Russia and previously in the Soviet Union over, over the past decades. Let's take a little bit of a step back and talk about how with the the crackdown on the censorship on referring to the war and the you know control of the media and the massive brain drain this kind of exodus of of uh anyone who had any disagreement with Putin you know kind of fleeing the country uh, you know uh, highly qualified people it seems impossible that news of how badly the war has been going for Russia could not have filtered back but i think we in some instances underestimate both the nationalism and the identity that this kind of, you know, Russian Orthodox nationalist identity that that Putin was able to create. How do you understand public opinion in Russia and how news of these events is really being received or is, is even able to filter down to the political Powers, as you pointed out, there you know there are politics within Russia. How is that being received uh, within Russia? Yeah, so uh, again, complicated. Um, so I think you know there are public opinion polls you can look at um, that you know one is run by Levada. Um, that's the only kind of independent group that's still functioning within Russia. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to make of those. Um, honestly, if someone came to your door, John, because a lot of these are done person to person, right? And says, hi, I'm here from whatever, Levada Polling Center. Um, do you approve of Vladimir Putin? What's the, what's the easiest, the path of least resistance for you, average Yvonne or John Sorensen? What are you going to say? Right. Fabulous. Please go away. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Love the guy. Right? <laughs> He's great. Yeah, right, right, exactly, right. Um, or you're going to refuse to answer, and we don't know how many refuse to answers there are anymore um, yeah, because they're not reporting those. But even even if everyone said, oh, sure, I'll answer, uh, I think that what they call preference falsification, gently, um, some people call lying, um, is, you know, we don't know how high that is, but it right. seems to be, you know, there are estimates of, of 20 to 30%. Okay, so um, then, but some people do say, especially young people. Uh, I don't support the war and I don't support uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, so there's a really clear break, uh, especially for under 25, 18 to 25 who, who answer and, and then a little bit less under 35. Over 55, it's a different ball game, uh, which is in itself intriguing because those are the people who were out yelling Daloy Kapiss in the 1990-91 down with the Communist Party. So here they are. So if Public opinion polling is difficult to interpret. I'm not sure how to discount those numbers. And the media obviously is uh, highly controlled. People aren't necessarily speaking out. Mm-hmm. Public demonstrations are going to be severely limited. What are you looking for as an observer going forward to understand how those political power centers are shifting either in, in shoring up Putin's uh, control or in terms of uh, forcing him to take a different path, or I think we're probably a long way away from regime change, but um, what what are you looking for in terms of 
reading the tea leaves. Now we're back to criminology, right? Right. right. So I don't think what's, you know, I think we should temper our expectations on on having some kind of, uh, you know, liberal democratic uh, social revolution, as you said, that's, that's the most unlikely um, scenario. Um, But but Putin does count on um, having uh, more uh, sort of popular support, even though he isn't completely secure in in how deep that support is, right? Um, than the the next uh, most popular politician. So for him, that's a resource. But this this would have and clearly has shaken up um, the elite in that you know who looks the worst in this campaign. So what do you ask? What do we look for? I'm not looking for popular demonstrations uh, tomorrow that are going to topple Putin. That seems least likely. However, it seemed as though the people on the streets of Rostov were cheering the Wagnerites. Now, in the Russian press right now, they're saying, oh, well, that was staged. Mm, I don't think it was staged. Uh, <laughs> you know, didn't didn't seem like that a lot of time to do that. Um, where is uh, Sidovikin? Um, well, I think the worry is uh, Sidovikin is very popular with the troops um, and the possibility that he may have encouraged Prigozhin to do this, um, to get himself back into command position. Um, if he, and thus the sort of hostage video, right? Um, so I think the worry is, you know, who's looked worse, uh, the worst, who is bearing the brunt of this very ill-considered uh, war is what it's become. Uh, the Russian military. Um, Shoigu, as we said at the beginning, you know, isn't of the Russian military, uh, the, the defense minister. He was emergencies minister uh, before that, um, but it, but this is this is not a career defense person. Sidovikin uh, uh, is, um, and they're losing their guys. Uh, they are, um, you know, not looking good, right? The, the mighty Russian military has been dethroned. Um, and there's only so long you can hide the high number of casualties that um, people like, you know, the British Defense Ministry are, are estimating at, at somewhere between, you know, this wildly different estimations. But they, they may have somewhere around 75,000 dead, but casualties of up to 200,000. Um, you know, meaning injured and can't keep fighting. I mean, put that well, in perspective of Afghanistan, which was wildly right. unpopular and caused huge domestic political t- turmoil for them. Uh, I mean, I mean, what fifteen thousand right. right. something like yep. that for Afghanistan? That yeah. and this is over yeah. nine years, yeah. right? That was that was nine years of conflict. This is this is eighteen months we're coming up on, right? Seventeen months. So there's only so long you can you can kind of hide that, and they're not hiding it really. And um, and Prigozhin's a problem when he stands in front of graves of Wagner soldiers, right, and says, "You guys are screwing up." And so there are going to be people like Sidovikin and and people lower than him who agree with that. And so that's what to watch for, I think, is kind of more uh, pressure in the military to either to either say, "Look, let's step it up," or "Let's get the heck out of here." Um, and so the challenge for the Ukrainians is get as much as you can now, take advantage of demoralized uh, leadership and troops, and try and get this over uh, by the fall fighting season and into negotiations. So I think that's that it will also be in Putin's interest. But I would expect that this, uh, as the Russians kind of get themselves back together after this sort of shock of, of Prigozhin, 
um, that they'll, uh, they'll, you know, try to double down. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I think we'll see the fall is very decisive for, for both sides because Russia doesn't have a history of military coups. Um, but it does, uh, you know, the, if the guys who are supposed to fight don't want to fight um, or uh, feel they're not getting what they need, then that is destabilizing. Ultimately, you know, as we said at the beginning, this is a system that is run a bit like the mafia and or a mafia organization. And, and you know, eventually the godfather um, can be replaced if, if he's not really, per, you know, able to provide some of the things that that uh, clients need, like stability, in order to do business. Well, we will wait for the uh, other shoe or the truckload of shoes to drop. And when we know more, hopefully we'll talk to you again and you can help us understand it a little bit better. Great. Catherine Stoner, thank you so much for joining us today and hope to talk to you again. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. It really helps others discover the program. And let us know what you think about the podcast. Is there a topic or guest you would like us to talk to? You can follow us on Twitter at HotWashRCD or send us an email with your comments to editors at RealClearDefense.com. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive The Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Sorensen.